Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. Uh, let me take a minute to formally introduce Tor- Dr. Torvald Lorenzen. Um, in 2009, this festschrift was published for Dr. Lorenzen, um, who, one of, who one student calls, quote, an erudite and compassionate New Testament scholar and theologian who brings to the task of doing theology a wide horizon of international experiences which inform his particular concern for human rights. This volume pictured here is testimony to the wide and deep impact that Torvald has had on many of us. Dr. Lorenzen was born in Hamburg, Germany, educated there and in Austria, uh, in Australia and Switzerland. Torvald spent three years teaching New Testament in the U.S., and then more than 20 years as pr- professor of systematic theology and social ethics at the International Baptist Theological Seminary in Ruschlikon, Switzerland. It was there in Ruschlikon that uh, Dr. Lorenzen taught many leaders of the radical discipleship movement, including the late Athel Gill and Reverend John Hurt, who we interviewed in our February webinar. Now, I mentioned these two Australians because they have been mentors of mine, so much so that I feel that I have been indirectly mentored by Torvald Lorenzen, even though I have only met him a couple of times. After moving to Australia, Lorenzen was senior minister of the Canberra Baptist Church in Australia from 1995 to 2005. He has also been active in the Human Rights Commission of the Baptist World Alliance. Though now retired from professional life, Torvald continues to serve as professor of theology and principal researcher at Charles Sturt University in Canberra and at St. Mark's Theological Center, where I believe he and Jeff Broughton are as we speak, as well as Whitley College in Melbourne at the University of Melbourne. Uh, Torvald also has seven grandchildren. Uh, now, <clears throat> welcome, Torvald. It's wonderful to have you. Thank you for making time to he- be here. And we had all the technology right. We just messed up on the time. <laughs> um, the best best laid plans. I want to begin um, with this quote from the book that we're going to be focusing on tonight. Uh, and keep in mind, uh, webinar participants, that Um, What I'm referring to as tonight is tomorrow morning in Australia. Uh, It would be good for all Christians and all churches to remember and retrieve this empowering confidence in resurrection as the wellspring of our faith. Nevertheless, it is not alive and well in our hearts and in our churches. So it is the noble task of theology to reflect on this deficiency and try to remind Christians and churches of their rich resources. This sums up the, the, the entree into tonight's interview with Torvald Lorenzen on this Easter Tuesday. I agree with Dr. Lorenzen that for most of our churches, including many of us in the radical discipleship movement, 
the resurrection tends to circulate at a very low rate of exchange. It's become in modernity far more scandalous even than the cross for Christians, uh, not to mention non-believers. And Dr. Lorenzen is the kind of pastoral and careful theologian to help us reground ourselves. This webinar is one way of celebrating the 20th anniversary of the publication of this book, um, which established uh, Torvald as one of the most foremost theologians of resurrection in the world. You see that Jürgen Moltmann, a very well-known um, German theologian, uh, called it both profound and reliable. And I would completely agree with that, um, with that assessment. It's a beautiful piece of constructive um, theology. Fortunately for those of us not trained in the Theological Academy, Torvald also wrote a shorter, more popular, and accessible version of this work, which will be the focus of my interview tonight. It is a book I highly recommend to each of our listeners. Um, again, Moltmann calls it the best I have read in the present-day theological discussion. It sets a new standard. Um, <clears throat> so, Torvald, let's let's um, get to work. But first of all, let me just allow you to to say hello and uh, um, greet greet the audience. Uh, please uh, please understand that Torvald is both speaking to a live audience there in Australia and also speaking to us on the webinar. Welcome, Torvald. Thank you, and it's really nice to be with you. Um, uh, let me just say that, as you realize, I'm speaking in a kind of funny English, so uh, I try to speak slowly and clearly so that people can understand. But it's nice to be with you. It's a great privilege to, to have you here, sir. I so appreciate you taking the time to be with us, and I know Jeff Broughton, who is riding shotgun with you there, <coughs> there um, uh, is really delighted to have you back in his classroom. Um, let's, let's start with um, one of the, the issues that you, uh, sorry, I skipped a slide there. One of the issues that you begin uh, with wrestling in, in your book, um, and that is the problem of modernism and the way that modernism has this rationalist epistemology that excludes all other ways of knowing. And so tightly does that epistemology have a hold on the modern mind that you have said only a distancing from the resurrection can save the concept of God for the modern seeker. Uh, and so you point out that in the, in the liberal side of the pr Protestant and Catholic churches, there have been two main trajectories, and I wonder if you could just uh, walk us through those, both the tendency to reduce the resurrection to an existentialist experience of the believer on one hand, or the tendency to just downplay it as a metaphor and focus instead on the historical Jesus. These are two really important trajectories that you talk about in, in your book. Yeah. Of great influence in... Uh, theology in the last century has been what um, some people would call the omnipotence of analogy. In theology, we speak about 
liberal theology trying to work out the framework of Christian faith with whatever is acceptable in the culture in which we live. And our, our culture uh, is dominated by the omnipotence of analogy. So something is real if we have an analogy in our own experience. So we can appreciate that Jesus was born because we know babies who are born. We can appreciate that Jesus lived and that Jesus died, even died for a good cause, because we know of people who um, die of good causes today. But we do not have an analogy for people who have risen from the dead. And therefore, the, the almighty influence of analogy makes it so difficult for us to affirm the resurrection as an event within the experience of our own life. And of course, theologians and church people would have the same difficulties than anybody else. So if you are an atheist, it's no problem. You just deny the resurrection. If you are a Christian, you face the difficulty that the holy scriptures of the Christian church speak about the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a central affirmation of faith. So theologians cannot avoid this. So they now have the problem, given the omnipotence of analogy, how can we fit the resurrection of Jesus into this? And there are a few ways of doing it. You mentioned a couple. They, they shift the emphasis from what happened to Jesus to what happens to us. So they somehow shift the emphasis and say, resurrection means the rising of faith within the disciples and within the lives of the Christians. Or they say, look, the resurrection is only a metaphor for the significance of Jesus. So they either shift forward to our faith, to the faith of the disciples, or they shift backwards to the historical Jesus and make Jesus into the hero or the, 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 the authentic person who has influenced our faith. So in both ways, you take the focus of the resurrection and either focus on the, on the believer or focus on the historical Jesus. Both are intention with the central affirmation of the New Testament, which makes the resurrection as the foundational event of the Christian faith. With other words, if there were no resurrection of Jesus Christ in the understanding of the earliest Christians and in the in the major theological trajectories today, if there are, were no resurrection, then there would be no Christian faith, 
there would be no Christian believers, there would be no Christian church. So shifting the emphasis to the believer or to Jesus, trying to avoid the scandalon, the stumbling block of the resurrection, does not solve the challenge to understand the foundational event of the Christian faith, which is the resurrection of the crucified Jesus. Now, thank you, thank you for this, and, and understand that you are both talking to theological, theological students in Canberra, but you're also talking to a, a wide range of um, practitioners and uh, pastors uh, and church folk here around North America. Um, and I believe that many of us, particularly those of us with a, an activist bent, and, and that would be the kind of folk who we, we work a lot with, uh, among these communities, I think these issues are, and these tendencies are, are very common. Um, <clears throat> many folk um, uh, will, will give a lot of authority to the subjective to our own experience, um, whereas um, more conservative people will give authority to the Bible or to the church, um, modern liberal people tend to give authority to their own subjective experience uh, or on the, on the secular side to their, to their scientific rationality. Um, and so I think um, it's, it's interesting as you deal with the um, the hypothesis among some theologians that um, we shouldn't focus on the resurrection as an event, but rather as a psychological experience of the early believers, um, the, the sort of risen Christ inside their head, as it were. Um, that would still be very common among many folk here today, on one hand. On the other hand, um, people like Dominic Crossan, who you um, are in respectful conversation with in your book. Um, a, a lot of us from the activist bent uh, who have learned so much from Dom Crossan about the historical Jesus as a, as a resistor of empire. Um, Dom Crossan has talked about the resurrection as a replaceable metaphor. So that in the end, whether one is psychologizing it or politicizing it, um, there's a tendency to remain very captive to the modern bounds of possibility. And I love what you say on page 31. It is the task of the theologian not to reduce God talk to our modern understanding of reality. God's sovereignty means there must be room for mystery and novum. Um, so maybe you can say a little bit about how you see the resurrection um, as sort of steering between the subjectivist and the objectivist um, fallacies, if you will, because I think that's a central part of the brilliance of your book. Yes. Uh, uh, people like, like uh, uh, John Dominic Crosson, of course, very knowledgeable people and great theologians, but it just shows to us that we all uh, have to investigate the Holy Scriptures and ultimately come to our own conclusion. And 
Although I would personally agree with the, let us say, the social ethics of, 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 of Croissant, who would say that, that Jesus empowers Christian communities of justice and peace. And that the resurrection is a metaphor for this empowerment. But as I have shown in my book, he also leaves the edges, he leaves the edges open. I think um, um, we also have to question the questions of theologians. You see, please uh, feel free to interrupt me. Um, I don't just want to go on and on and on, but, uh, but I think we, we have to build a kind of framework on which we make theological judgment. You see, basically, the theology of resurrection is based on three pillars. The first pillar is the primary pillar, according to most theologians, uh, the appearances of the risen Christ to the disciples, at least to Peter, Paul, and Mary, but to the disciples, let us say. The appearances, that's one pillar. But the challenge is, of course, are these appearances just psychological visions? That's something which is hard to prove. So that's one pillar. The second pillar is, as you have just indicated in your uh, Bible study, the second pillar are the, the narratives of the empty tomb. So where the corpse of Jesus was laid, was discovered to be empty, and this empty tomb narrative is found in each of the four Gospels in different ways, with different theological emphasis. But, importantly, it is not mentioned by the Apostle Paul. Now, you can say, most people say it's a kind of argument from silence, Paul presupposes it, but Paul develops a very sophisticated theology of the resurrection without mentioning explicitly the empty tomb. So the empty tomb, I would say there's many arguments which speak for it, but ultimately, historically, not conclusive. So we need to recognize the third pillar, which is often looked, overlooked in theological arguments. The Apostle Paul says that Christ was raised in the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 1, 3 and 4. So, the affirmation of the resurrection includes the work of the Holy Spirit, the third pillar. And as, as you would all know, the Spirit in the framework of a Trinitarian theology means that God becomes 
experientially valid in the life of the Christian. So the, the work of the Spirit is intimately tied up with the creation of faith. And therefore, we, the believer, are part of the resurrection story. So we now need to say something about faith. You want me to go on? Before you do, um, let's also look at the way in which your proposal is um, also contesting the conservative side of the spectrum, and that is the tendency among evangelical apologetics to insist on, well, the resurrection was a historical event, we can prove it, it's empirical, um, and, and therefore thereby they, they actually end up objectifying it and undermining the point that you just said, which is the experience of faith. So I want to return to the question of the resurrection and the faith of the believer, but for a minute I also want you to talk yeah. about your critique of the conservative side of the spectrum. Great. Illustration. If you want to kiss your wife, Do you kiss your wife or do you first go to the document folder and make sure that you're really married? Look at your marriage certificate. Of course you don't. In kissing your wife, the marriage certificate and what it stands for is presupposed. In theology, we have to question the questions of theologians. It is understandable, given the dominance of reason in our life, giving, given the, the interest to prove on our terms that God raised Jesus from the dead, it is, is understandable that we want to rationally show that the tomb was empty. Because then we feel that we have proven that God raised Jesus from the dead. But that is, that, that is where we make a side street the main avenue. The main question in resurrection theology is not whether the tomb was empty. The main question is whether we are drawn into the story of God for this world through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I do not deny that in the reality of the resurrection, there are what Karl Barth calls tiny historical margins. One such historical margin is the appearance of Christ to the disciples. Another tiny historical margin is the empty tomb. But our focus on it is what in theology we call apologetics. And it misses the main point. 
The main point is a holistic understanding of what God has done in raising Jesus from the dead. Not just rational inquiry, but a holistic response. And my problem with conservative evangelicals is that they have given in to the temptation of rationally proving from, for themselves that God has raised Jesus from the dead. So they make themselves master over the event rather than being hearers of the word and servers of the event. Mm. And I, I want to come back to that in, in a minute or two. Here's how you summarize um, what you call the deadlock of the objectivist and subjectivist um, interpretive strategies. Our responsibility, and you say this several times in the book, and I, I, I just really love this approach, we've got to put our cards on the table and enter into open and fearless dialogue. But one of the things that attracts me most to your theory, and I think would attract many in our circle, is that uh, <clears throat> although I think we are all influenced by the uh, sort of subjectivist orientation of modernity, uh, there's a lot of suspicion about um, the modernist paradigm itself. And so I think there's a new opening theologically today for um, postmodern interpretations of things, of which yours, I believe, is one. And you say, do we have to join fundamentalists and liberals who tend to absolutize our modern Western scientific worldview and then interpret and evaluate the past in light of the present? In our attitude and approach to ancient texts, should we not display some hermeneutical humility and allow for the possibility that reality may be wider and even different than our perception of it? Now, you say this specifically in terms uh, of the resurrection, which you call um, not a replaceable metaphor, as Crossan does, but you would accept the term metaphor in, in the sense that we, we don't have the categories to speak of it, so like God, God's self, we can only speak metaphorically uh, about those ultimacies, and yet you would say that the resurrection is an irreplaceable metaphor. Moreover, um, how we talk about it or experience it is in fact grounded in God's, um, in an event of God's intervention. Um, so it seems to me you're trying to find this, this way through, uh, through the needle, and I, and I really appreciate that. Yes, yes. Um, um, that is true. It is a basic hermeneutical principle, not only for theology, but for any science, that the object of inquiry, in our case, the resurrection, becomes the subject for our investigation. That's what I mean by humility. We do not try, we try to use a hermeneutic of suspicion, suspicion of ourselves. We try to listen what is happening there and what the texts tell us. And here it is really important that the emphasis on the texts is not 
to give a historical validation for the resurrection of Jesus. The emphasis on the text is that God has done something in and with Jesus what we could not do for ourselves. And therefore, go ahead. Yeah. Therefore, the resurrection of Jesus has a twofold, I mean more than two, but I mentioned two dimensions. One dimension is that the forces of death which brought Jesus to the cross did not ultimately defeat God, but God defeated the forces of death. That's what we mean when we speak in many different words about reconciliation, propitiation, atonement, and so on and so on. So God has done something in and with Jesus, what needs to be done for us in order to be reconciled to God, what we could not do for ourselves. This is why we call Jesus not only a good man, a hero, but a savior. That's the first, which is often over forgotten, especially by young theologians, because they do not yet feel the existential need to have a savior. They are still full of hormones, still of energy. They want to change the world, and therefore they want to have Aung San Suu Kyi and Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King and Jesus in that kind of trajectory. They need an inspiration to help them in their social activism. But when Nelson Mandela was on Robben Island, I know one of the Methodist priests who came to him and gave him the Eucharist. So he would not claim in any way to be a savior. He may be a revolutionary, somebody we need, and I am inspired by lives like that. Jesus is more. He is a savior. So that's one dimension of the resurrection, the, that God, by raising Jesus from the dead, defeated the powers of death which brought Jesus to the cross. And the other dimension is that God vindicated the life of Jesus. Not Caiaphas, not Pilate. Jesus was raised from the dead. And that, in our focus to prove the empty tomb, as you find in the many, in the many, um, what do they call them in America, the, the resurrection, not seminars, conventions, you know, where you gather thousands of people and focus on whether Jesus really rose from the dead or not, focusing on the historical veracity of the empty tomb. No. Jesus was raised from the dead, and thereby God vindicated this Jesus. Now, 
Would Jesus has been crucified if he would have gone to the parties of the Pharisees? Or if he would have gone to the caves at the Dead Sea with the Essenes? Or if he would have joined the community of the temple priests? Or would have joined the conversations of the Sadducees? No. Jesus was opposed, captured, tortured, and ultimately executed because he lived a certain kind of life. And this certain kind of life must come to expression in those who affirm the resurrection of Jesus. And that is often missing in the theology of conservative evangelicals. It is the Jesus who for particular reasons was crucified, who was raised from the dead, and thereby God vindicated and expects us to tell the story of this crucified Jesus who was raised from the dead. So Jesus is not only the ground of faith, the foundation, but Jesus is also the content of our faith. Now, I could go on, but... Right, and I've, I've uh, <clears throat> put up a slide here of uh, something you say about uh, the, the ontology of the resurrection, where you, you've, you've talked about how it's important for us to always and everywhere to say it was the crucified Jesus who was, who was raised by God. So it's, it's something in continuity, not discontinuity, with the life and death of Jesus. Um, yes. And that the resurrection, moreover, establishes an, a new transfigured ontology of justice, um, which you talk about meaning that at the center of life, at the foundation of being, is not nothing but God, not violence but nonviolence, not war but peace, not hatred but love. And this also is... is is what you mean when you say that the crucified Jesus was, was raised. That's, that is a really important point because it helps us to distinguish in abstract terms, to distinguish between the power of weakness and the weakness of power. It helps us to appreciate analogies like Gandhi, Mohandas Gandhi against the overwhelming British Empire. Where is truth? Martin Luther King against the racist establishment. Aung San Suu Kyi against the military junta. Pilate against Jesus. So where is truth? <clears throat> I think it is helpful to know that truth is tied to the crucified Jesus, whom we confess to be vindicated by God, because that helps us in our struggle for peace and justice against overwhelming odds at times. Mm -hmm. We believe that Ultimately, God's peace 
and God's justice will be established, will win, and we are servants of that hope. And then you intensify that so beautifully when you talk about the second aspect, uh, that the resurrection is really about the death of death. Uh, drawing, of course, on the Apostle Paul here. You have a beautiful poem here by the Swiss theologian Kurt Marti um, that I'm, I just want to leave up on the screen for our um, uh, viewers to, to see. It's a, it's a beautiful poem. Here you sound very much like the American theologian William Stringfellow in, in uh, um, affirming that the essence of the resurrection is the defeat of, of death. Um, what might you want to say more about that, Torvald? Yes, a defeat of death ultimately, because we live in a time where death in its many manifestations reigns. You see, if you investigate, for instance, the Old Testament understanding of death, death is not just what happens as a physical event at the end of our life. Death is the servant of negativity, the servant of nothingness which invades our life through injustice, depression, sadness, and so on and so on. These are the servants of death. Now, if we believe that God defeated death in the raising of Jesus, then this liberates us to become servants of life. Now, but you need an eschatological dimension. The, the philosopher uh, and sociologist, part of the Frankfurt School, Max Horkheimer, in an interview said, I long for the hope that ultimately the oppressor will not win uh, over his innocent victim. So that ultimately, truth and justice and peace will reign. And that is what Christians mean when they call about an ultimate judgment. It is not a judgment so that people will be kind of punished for their sins. It is the realistic hope that ultimately the God who has raised Jesus from the dead will establish what has come to fruition in this event of the resurrection. Namely, Jesus, the man of peace. Jesus, the man for others. Jesus, the one who touched the leper. Jesus, the one who gave equality to women. So that ultimately, the murderer will not triumph over his or her innocent victim. You have been listening to the BartCast. Produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the Bartcast, please go to chedmyers.org. 
Thank you for listening. <laughs>